Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Get ready for a great bonus in the life of a Spirit in Action listener. As it is, you get to hear Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio every three months as he guest hosts in my place. But due to a bumper crop of great programming on his part, and because I'm off biking, canoeing, and camping with my sweet partner this week, you get to spend an extra hour with Peterson to kick off September. And what a program it is. You know how sometimes it seems hopeless these days to find any way that Republicans and Democrats can work together on the big issues confronting us? While I'm not saying it is or will be easy, what Peterson has to share today about conservatives eagerly joining in the fight against climate change may brighten your day. There's more that he has to share, as always, but that's just one of the beautiful things he'll be bringing to you today, and it makes me feel easier heading off on vacation knowing you all have the talented and insightful Peterson Toscano sitting in for me. Over to you, Peterson. Thank you, Mark. In today's show, we will travel to the past to learn from Walt Whitman. His life experiences help me today in taking on the challenges we face. We also hear from Solomon Goldstein Rose, who is proposing a 100% solution to take on climate change. But first, a story you may not have heard about. There is a growing movement among Republicans to take climate change seriously. Republicans, young and old, tell us why they are concerned about global warming and what they want to do about it. In February, I traveled to Washington, D.C. for the first ever all-conservative Citizens Climate Training and Lobby Days. Nearly 100 people showed up from all over the country, young and older. They met with Republican staff and members of Congress to talk about climate change and a path forward. In today's show, I share excerpts from those conversations. I also follow up with two conservative climate advocates so that we can go a little deeper. You will learn what has changed in the Republican Party, especially for climate advocates lobbying conservative members of Congress. Guests will share what Republicans bring to the climate conversations and the conservative values that compel them to pursue effective ways to transform our energy economy. You will also receive advice and hear the ways these conservatives are speaking with their family, friends, and elected leaders about climate change. First, though, let's hear a little bit of what people who attended February's conservative training and lobby days had to say. Cindy Burbank. I was originally a skeptic about climate change. In my government job, I had to deal with it some. And the more I learned about it and delved into it, the more I said, this is real. It's really significant. And we've got to have conservatives on board as well as Democrats. We're going to solve it. Plus, as a conservative, really want a solution that doesn't grow government and that it'll be effective, but it gets businesses and individuals making good choices. Isuru Senemiratna, in this conservative climate outreach, we stressed our conservative values in fiscal responsibility, in government not picking in winners and losers, in, you know, systemic change that grows jobs and the economy. I think that resonated with the offices that we met. 
we are there pitching a conservative solution to climate change, which also happens to be very equitable. So my name is Jacob Abel. In terms of our solution, I think it's the most economically viable. Growing up, struggling during the recession, valuing a dollar, I think this is the best way to go about it. So my name is Carlos Sims. Within my realm of understanding and of my social group, which is a lot of conservatives, so we share this concern for climate change, just like the left does. The only difference is that the left has really dominated this issue, trying to find ways to mitigate the situation and trying to lobby. And here we are, just now getting into the game. Yeah, my name is Katie Zakreski. I would need to remind not just the Republican Party. But everybody who's active in politics and everybody who's here in this country, that we will make a lot more progress if we treat people that we might not agree with with respect, and at least understand that they probably have a reason for believing what they do, just like you've got a reason for believing what you do. Might not make it right in your mind. That's okay. But you need to be able to foster a healthy, productive conversation with them so that you can at least see where they're coming from and kind of acknowledge that in some of the things that you do. So, when it comes to climate, what has changed for Republicans? The era of climate denialism among Republicans is over. You do not need to dispute climate science with Republicans. Today, the question is: What is the conservative response to the risk associated with climate change? That's Alex Flint, the executive director at Alliance for Market Solutions. Along with a panel of other Republicans, Alex spoke at the Citizens Climate Conservative Gathering in February. In 2018. We met with 82 Republican members of Congress. One of them denied that the climate was changing. Met with 171 in 2019. Not a single one said that the climate wasn't changing. Now, what to do about it? That's one argument. But, but frankly, the the denier community is shrinking. It is not influential. The CO2 coalition was interviewed in what paper was it? Axios or National Journal? One of them. And the executive director complained that they couldn't get meetings on Capitol Hill. He told me it was taken out of context. But <laughs> there's no context in which, as an advocate, you want to admit you can't even get a meeting. <laughs> When Alex Flint approaches a Republican lawmaker, they take the meeting. He previously served as staff director of the U.S. Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. He was the senior vice president of governmental affairs at the Nuclear Energy Institute. Oh, and he was a member of President Trump's transition team. We find that when we meet with Republican members, we are in the role of counselor more than we're in the role of lobbyist. I lead with a discussion about climate science. You need to take the IPCC report seriously. Last year's report says that if Paris is fully implemented and it is not on track to be fully implemented, temperature will go up 5.2 to 6 degrees Fahrenheit. By the way, I always talk in Fahrenheit because nobody actually understands what Celsius is. To talk more about what has changed in the Republican Party, I reached out to the man who organized February's Conservative Lobby Day. Meet Jim Tolbert. He is the Conservative Outreach Director for Citizens Climate Education. Jim has degrees in geology with a focus on environmental geochemistry. After he graduated, he was hired by an environmental consulting company. Worked there for 28 years, doing、uh, a lot of environmental studies and environmental cleanups for historic and current releases of chemicals to the environment. 
organizing the cleanup of waste sites. So wait, is Jim one of those green eco-warrior environmentalists? I could tap you into some people who would say, no, Jim is not an environmentalist. The clientele I worked for were large corporations. I spent a lot of time helping Dow Chemical with, with their facilities and their historic releases. They'd been around since the 1890s in Michigan and did things that were perfectly legal that really had a lot of impact on the Titabawassee River and the area around Midland. And I helped them look at uh, what do you do now that we understand that, that there's consequences from it. I worked a lot with oil and gas and chemical companies. I was on the board of the directors for the Michigan Chemistry Council for 20 years, six years as the president of the board, supporting really high quality jobs for the chemical industry in Michigan. I'm very proud of the cleanups I led and was part of and the teams and the projects I worked on, but I could definitely go out and find some people at the at the regulatory agencies that might not agree that my, my track record would say I was an environmentalist. And when it comes to climate change, Jim is quick to point out that conservative leaders were some of the first and most vocal advocates for addressing global warming. I would encourage anybody listening to this to go look at Margaret Thatcher's speeches to the UN. Margaret Thatcher was a staunch conservative, the Iron Lady, who, if you go back to that time, had a lot of people that were not conservative that really did not like her. She had a background in chemistry and really understood the issue and gave some very solid speeches on why conservatives need to address climate change from the very beginning. Until recently, we've always thought that whatever progress humanity makes, our planet would stay much the same. That may no longer be true. The way we generate energy, the way we use land, the way industry uses natural resources and disposes of waste, the way our populations multiply, those things taken together are new in the experience of the Earth. They threaten to change the atmosphere above us and the sea around us. That is the scale of the global challenge. Jim recognizes something changed, and his party had become infamous for its climate skepticism. I think there were some very intelligent people that were rather savvy in, in shifting the, the dialogue on the right. My view is those shifts weren't in a constructive direction, but they happened. Since then, we've been uh, trying to dig this out of a uh, partisan divide issue where people view climate change as associated with a few key individuals on the left, and therefore it must be a liberal issue as opposed to climate change is, is really just a question of looking at the world and figuring out what's happening and responding to that and, and saying, okay, what's an appropriate response? Having conservatives speak with other conservatives makes a big difference. This is why Jim organized the February event. We held a climate advocate training that was specifically focused more on conservatives than our traditional climate advocate training. And then a concurrent, concurrent breakout sessions and training, just like normally in the lobby day practice, and then went up to the Hill and divided into teams and met with members of Congress where we had a constituent present, Republican members only. So we always had a constituent in the room and all of the teams were all conservative. The tone and the direction of a conversation has the opportunity to go in different directions. When the people in the room are, are talking about protecting our party and wanting our party to have a future and agreeing with a lot of the points and concerns a staff, senior staff person or a member brings up, starting the conversation from there 
from that base of shared values can foster the extended growth of our the relationships we're trying to build based on trust and communication with our members of Congress. Mary Lying was one of the people who traveled across the country to be part of this conservative lobbying effort. I currently live in Scottsdale, Arizona, but I grew up in Kentucky. She made sure the congressional staffers she met with knew she was a lifelong Republican. I tried to bring some humor to that, and I said this year is the 40th anniversary of my 18th birthday when I registered as a Republican. (laughs) Now, I think that we've come a long way and that the Republicans are coming a long way in that regard from not looking at the science or ignoring the science to now embracing the science and embracing some form of solution to it. And what was her message to these Republicans on the Hill? Well, I think that we don't need a solution that swings the pendulum from one extreme to where we're doing very little right now to where we just go kind of off the charts and dismantle everything. We don't want to dismantle oil companies and and the fossil fuel companies. We want a transition. We want a slow transition in this country to more responsible forms of energy without blowing the whole thing up. Like Mary Lying, her fellow Republicans and right-leaning independents bring their conservative values to the climate conversation. In doing so, they want to push their party to develop large-scale policies that will make a big impact. The climate policies Republican leaders have proposed are an encouraging first step, but according to Alex Flint, the party must do much, much more. One of the things that we are observing is an embracing of what I think is generally referred to as the innovation agenda. We are going to innovate our way out of this. What's missing from the innovation agenda sometimes, and I I can't apply this universally, but frequently, is something that ensures that innovation occurs at the scale necessary to actually address the problem at the scale it needs to be. And so what is happening, in my opinion, is that innovation is becoming the political response because it addresses the near-term need to say something, but it may, but it may be inadequate. Uh, there are certainly those who respond that this is actually a very good step, that some of these Republicans are looking for fig leaves on this, and they're embracing innovation as a fig leaf. I, I tell them that I, I understand that only naked people look for fig leaves, <laughs> so they recognize that they have a vulnerability here. But what you have to make sure is that they recognize the scale To help move the party along, new, younger voices are needed. The other day, I followed up with one of these young Republicans. Meet Jacob Abel. Jacob is back home in North Carolina after finishing his senior year at Seton Hall University, where he studied international relations. When I first turned uh, 18 with allowed to vote, I was I started as an independent, but I quickly changed to a Republican in, within a few months. A big fiscal conservative, so very much concerned about the national debt and uh, having a balanced budget. For me, I really started learning about climate change in my freshman year of high school in my Earth and Environmental Science class. I had a really good teacher who really presented the science of it. Sort of fast forwarding to the summer before my senior year of, at high school. I went to a, a camp at Long Island University in Brooklyn. The subject of that camp, it was an international relations camp, was, was climate change. And, you know, we debated the different policies from different points of view of different countries. 
then moving forward, going into college, studying international relations, it's obviously a, probably the biggest global issue there is. And as I went further through college, I sort of discovered my political identity a bit more as I got older. Not hearing enough Republicans at the table and hearing enough conservative policy, kind of why I got involved. Through Representative Bob Inglis's conservative climate group, Republic Ian, Jacob deepened his commitment to speaking to fellow Republicans about climate and the future of the party. He too is seeing big shifts in the GOP. Even so, like Alex Flint, Jacob believes the party is at risk for not thinking big enough. Republicans are definitely want to, I think, address it. They're seeing sort of the writing on the wall in terms of we need some sort of policy to offer to people and how we're going to address climate change. Uh, I may disagree a bit on the aggressiveness of, of that policy and not being aggressive enough, I should say. But it's definitely changed because I think Republican leadership notices that they're going to lose young voters if they don't have some sort of policy to address it. As a fiscal conservative, Jacob wants his party to champion plans that make financial sense, specifically carbon pricing. In terms of looking at sort of some of the climate plans of the Democratic candidates in this past or upcoming cycle, they wanted to spend trillions of dollars, taxpayer dollars, which I just don't think is realistic. And, you know, listening to some of the solutions at the UN and things of that sort, spending trillions of dollars and first of all asking where you're going to get this money from. But also, I just think there's better ways of going about of addressing this problem. And I think the free market can do it. I think the free market and private enterprise innovates better than anything else um, on the planet. Giving them the tools and the incentives to do so is just the key. And I think that's the most important point to sell. Adding a dividend to the carbon pricing then makes it attractive to Republicans and also politically viable. But I think it's definitely the fact that you're offering something that's within their, their set of values, but also if you get down to the economic points, it can be very beneficial to the economy and it doesn't hurt people. You know, a lot of times when you say carbon tax, a lot of Republicans will freak out, but I think based off our bill and our model, you are with the dividend approach giving that money back and it can benefit lower to middle income families without really necessarily wrecking the economy. Jacob recognizes that the messages about climate to conservatives need to be different from what they've been hearing from the left. He advises against using fear tactics. That sort of language, that very sort of apocalyptic language has been, I think, more damaging to the climate movement in terms of trying to get Republicans on board more than anything else. But in terms of what I use, I kind of both go back to the history of the party in terms of the Teddy Roosevelt's, the Ronald Reagan's, the Richard Nixon's, who all established good environmental policy as Republicans. So I think it's sort of picking up the mantle that our party has always sort of upheld in terms of conservation and having a clean environment, but also looking at carbon pricing specifically as, as, a, as a market-based solution. Those sorts of things speak to conservatives and their values, and you're not necessarily speaking, oh my God, the world's going to end, or you're not attacking them. You're, you're selling something, which I think is the key to any policy discussion. Another young Republican I met at the conference also leads with her values when talking about climate change. She was just finishing her undergraduate work at the University of Arkansas. Yeah, my name is Katie Zakreski. I am a double major in criminal justice and anthropology. I'm hoping to really do a lot of policy work, continue to do kind of what I've been doing, but just on a larger scale within the state. But I was a volunteer on a solar energy campaign for Audubon, Arkansas. The way that I related it to them was being like, look, look at all these good financial benefits that are going to impact our state positively, that are going to help people get jobs. These jobs can't be outsourced. You can't outsource the sun. Just just things like that, like showing people this is this is for the common man and woman. This is exactly what we want. 
as people, as voters, as Arkansans, as Americans. Hearing Katie, I am reminded that people can care about the same issue, in this case climate change, for very different reasons. Alex Flint stresses that conversations addressing climate change need to be grounded in values. In fact, he believes conservatives are at an advantage here. In the face of the risks associated from climate change, I think conservatives and conservative values can lead and be better at addressing these issues than liberal values. And I believe that we can get to that point where that is evident to everyone. So my counsel is talk about your values with members, scale or frame the problem the way you see it. I personally am very concerned about the energy requirements of the globe as we approach nine or 10 million people. I believe there's a moral and economic imperative that people have access to energy because it extends life expectancy and reduces infant mortality and improves education and the standard of living. And I believe that if governments don't provide for that energy, there will be political disruption and governments will fall over these issues and all their associated issues. And so we have to come up with climate policies that reflect that reality. He also offers helpful advice for volunteer lobbyists to speak to Republican lawmakers in light of this shift away from climate denial. If you go in there defensive about the science or thinking they're going to challenge you, frankly, I think you're preparing for a conversation you're not going to have. The conversation to have is, okay, now that we don't deny the science anymore, what do we do about it? What is our alternative to the Green New Deal? That's where members need help. They need, like, simple help, like, if you get asked about climate change out of town hall meeting, what should you say? Kind of help. A lot of them are not particularly conversant on climate right now. Environmentalists didn't go see them. Corporations that were lobbying about them on other issues didn't want to waste a bullet on climate for some time. I had a Republican senator say, Alex, you're the first person to come talk to me about climate change who wasn't hoping I'd lose my reelection. That was two and a half years ago. Go all the way up to three weeks ago when the House Republican Conference held its first policy meeting of the year and the topic was climate change and what the party's position should be on climate change. And Kevin McCarthy said, we can no longer be deniers or we will not win elections going forward. Last year, the orthodoxy changed. We are not the party of deniers, but we haven't really figured out what we're for. Jim Talbert, who organized the conference and started the Citizens Climate Conservative Fellows Program, shares his own thoughts about communicating climate to fellow Republicans. One thing many people on the right clearly hear when they hear people talk about climate is another issue where a federal government is trying to come in and tell me what to do and put constraints on what I am allowed to do. Another piece they hear, and I see a lot of people propagating this, is what this is about either living like we used to live in the past or us living with less. What you're trying to do is make it so I can't afford to turn my lights on at night and I can't afford to heat my house. And when I can no longer afford to do those things, you're going to feel that successful. The way some people can present a carbon tax is it almost comes across that way. Like, yeah, we, what we want to do is increase your power bill so that you can no longer afford to heat your house. And then you'll emit less. Isn't that a good thing? But you'll have a little bit more money so you can buy a, a burger if you bicycle to McDonald's. That's not too far off from some messaging I hear. What we've seen right now with COVID is we've shut our economy down and our emissions are decreasing. And that is exactly how we don't want to address climate change. 
What we don't want is a policy that shuts our economy down to reduce emissions. What we want is a, a, a policy that lets us grow our economy with an abundance of energy and an abundance of jobs for people and a growing GDP, which is what we have in a price on carbon when you return that money back into people's pockets because then they go spend it. And what about the other citizens' climate volunteers and liberal or progressive climate advocates? How can they be effective and informed climate advocates when addressing conservatives? Jim offers some advice. A lot of time listening and asking follow-up questions in a non-judgmental way as opposed to a conversation about trying to convince the person they need to be a CCL member or they need to support a bill. I've heard a lot of CCL members say, yeah, I, I do know some conservatives, conservatives that, you know, that are in your trust circle, ask for their advice. Say, hey, you, you know this is an important issue to me. You know I go to D.C. once a year or so. One, I'd like to understand your views on it, have that, but have another angle of saying, hey, I, I'm really interested in how to approach other conservatives. Don't turn it into I'm trying to convince you I'm right conversation. The Citizens Climate Conservative Lobby and training event happened in early February, nearly a month before we started hearing about deaths from COVID-19 in the U.S. There were still no social distancing guidelines. Most of us did not yet realize the impact the virus was about to have on society, the economy, the political process, and in our own lives. Katie from Little Rock, Arkansas, squeezed in the visit to D.C. in the middle of a very busy semester on a campus where she was also student council president. It was the day of the State of the Union address when I asked Katie, if you had a few words to say to the nation, what might you say? Now, as we are in the midst of one of the greatest threats Americans and people all over the globe have ever faced, Katie's answer is all the more powerful and timely. We need to stop focusing on what's best for our party and focus on what's best for our country and what's best for our country's people and the people that we ultimately serve. We're stuck in what feels like a system of hate right now. I think that people have forgotten that we're all equal, that we all need to see eye to eye with each other. I think that people are afraid of being attacked right now for their political views, so much so that they just go straight for the defensive instead of being like, okay, this is what I believe, what do you believe? Before we can really make any progress, we're going to need to enter a state of healing and step back and realize that we're all Americans. That even if your individual values differ along that spectrum, that's okay. But our first priority is to our people. And it's to our country and whatever we need to do to make that better. Stay tuned. There's lots more ahead. Solomon Goldstein Rose lays out a 100% solution to address climate change. Plus... We have a special cameo appearance from Walt Whitman. I know that all of you Spirit and Action listeners can't wait to hear Walt Whitman's cameo appearance, not to mention hearing about Solomon Goldstein Rose's 100% solution. But I still need to remind you that this is Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org and that there are a bunch of great things on the website in addition to what you're hearing. Among them, links to all of our guests of the past 15 years and to Peterson Toscano, today's guest host, and so much more. You'll be doing us and other listeners a favor if you rate and post comments on the shows you listen to here. And don't forget, there is a very useful donate button on northernspiritradio.org 
which will help you to help us, either by sending us a check or donating online, making it easier for us to keep up this service. Also on our site is a list of the stations carrying our programs, and we really want you to offer your hands and your donations to these great community radio stations in the full knowledge that you'll be strengthening your community by supporting a vital local voice. I've surely kept you away from the riches of Citizens Climate Radio long enough, so I'll turn it back over to Peterson now. Hi, I'm Peterson Toscano, the host of Citizens Climate Radio, guest hosting here on Spirit in Action. I'm thrilled to share with you the following feature I did on Solomon Goldstein Rose, who is from Massachusetts. He is someone who takes climate change seriously. He is trying to persuade us to think bigger, much, much bigger. You actually have to not just start eliminating emissions to see any reduction in impacts. You have to get all the way, 100% of eliminating emissions and actually getting into net negative emissions before impacts start lessening. That's Solomon Goldstein Rose. Because if we don't get 100% of the way there, we are still making the problem worse every year. The longer that goes on, the more likely it is that we pass a point where impacts just are not manageable, or we get permanent changes to parts of the earth that we can't recover from. In 2017, at the age of 22, Solomon was elected to Massachusetts legislature. After a two-year term, he decided he would not run again. Instead, he's been ramping up his efforts to get us thinking and acting about climate change. I work on climate change because that's what I've been doing in some way or another since I was about 11 years old. First as a youth activist in my school district, and then as an engineering student and a public policy student and an intern and a legislator. And now I don't even have a title exactly. It's just what I work on full time, talking with people about how we can solve climate change and doing the analysis and writing an outreach to try to build more consensus around what needs to happen to add up. In March, just as the COVID-19 global pandemic shut everything down, Solomon published his first book, The 100% Solution, A Plan for Solving Climate Change. The 100% Solution is about the need to get all the way to net negative global emissions before we see a reduction in impacts. And to do that by 2050, which is what the IPCC says we should be aiming for, to limit the impacts that we do have to deal with to manageable levels. This sounds wonderfully ambitious, but isn't this what we are all aiming for through lobbying, speaking out, and suggesting solutions, building political will? One of the, the conventional wisdom ideas that the book challenges a bit is this, this line that gets repeated, we have all the technology we need, we just need political will. This gets used in different contexts it may be one interpretation of it that I'm quibbling with, but I have a whole section of the book talking about how this is rooted in an ideology that we could just choose to eliminate all emissions, as if there was a, sort of a switch we could flip, and we just need the, the political will, the movement to create the political power to just choose to do that. And then it happens, and, and then we're done. We do need to build a lot of political power to make things happen. But what needs to happen is getting us on a track that adds up globally by 2050. And that is this massive engineering challenge. Solomon recognizes some successes have been made through building political will, 
but he points to a missing piece of the puzzle. Yes, we can choose to start replacing coal and methane, which we call natural gas, power plants, with wind and solar electricity generation. An electric utility company can build a bunch of solar farms and they'll run their methane power plants a little less. Since the early 2000s, solar installation costs have dropped enough that they might even save money, at least with the income from state and federal subsidies. Indeed, some states have driven this process along to the extent that solar now comprises about 10% of their electricity generation. So political will can cause some percent of methane to be replaced with solar. But if we push that to 100% and shut the methane plants down entirely, we wouldn't have electricity at night. The 100% scenario isn't the same engineering-wise as the 10% scenario. So a longer-sighted political argument would acknowledge that the anti-climate action politicians are partly right. Some technologies, such as batteries to store solar energy for a full nighttime, are too expensive to adopt right now. Rather than pretending that everything is cheap enough already, or succumbing to the defeatist or denialist argument that we should wait for technology improvements to just come along before taking any meaningful climate action, pro-action politicians should emphasize the need to create those improvements in technology so we can mandate solutions where necessary and see other technologies get adopted naturally as they become the cheapest option in the market. As a thought leader, Solomon is trying to get Americans to think globally. He wants the U.S. to consider a larger role in addressing climate change. We don't have all the technology we need affordable enough. And this gets to the really the core of my framework is a focus on developing countries, which emit two-thirds of greenhouse gases. And we don't think about this a lot. This isn't counter to conventional wisdom exactly. It's just a fact that we don't tend to talk about. Two-thirds of current emissions come from developing countries. Whether we think we could reduce our own emissions enough to actually eliminate them by changing our lifestyles or by adopting stringent policy mandates, that's not going to work in India or Indonesia or Brazil, places where fossil fuels are lifting people out of poverty. We have to have systems that are cheaper because that's the only way they're going to be adopted fast enough. The government of India would love to solve climate change because they're going to be massively impacted. Plus, they've got air pollution from all the fossil fuels that they're using clogging their cities. There is political will. There is not the economic means to decarbonize that right now. Our role as industrialized countries is not so much about doing our part. It's about making it possible for every country, including the developing countries that emit two-thirds of greenhouse gases, every country to decarbonize. And that means doing all the range of innovation to make equipment cheaper. That's R&D, that's manufacturing, scale up various mandates and subsidies to drive the early scale up of deployment of technologies. All of that brings down the cost of cleaning systems. And when they become cheap enough to spread worldwide, then we will see a rapid transition to eliminate emissions. Solomon is a pragmatist. He is trying hard to help us clearly see the scale of the problems we face and therefore the solutions we must seek. We need to use pretty much all the available technologies that are physically useful and we need to make it work in every single country. You can't leave any part of the world or any source of emissions out. And we're going to need to go further with this than net zero to get into net negative emissions. That's what we'll start drawing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere down, that will eventually, over decades, bring us back to historic average CO2 levels and historic temperatures. 
in proposing solutions, Solomon Goldstein Rose is not afraid to be provocative. He jumps dab smack in the middle of one of the biggest debates in the climate movement right now. One of the things that is controversial to some people, but going to be crucial in solving climate change, is accelerating the deployment of advanced nuclear reactors. We're talking about small modular reactors, things that our various startups are designing right now and no one has really built yet, but they're going to be manufactured in shipyards or factories, standardized designs, mass-produced. This has never been tried with nuclear power technologies. We've only ever built one design as many as maybe 30 times. So they've never gotten the economies of scale, the learning curve of an industry to bring costs down. And no wonder people say, oh, well, it's so expensive. Well, yeah, because we've never tried a business model that would make it less expensive. And this is crucial because we're going to need as much solar and wind and storage and transmission as we can. But the amount of clean electricity generation that we have to build is so vast. It's, I estimate, about five times the amount of electricity generation we have today is what we're going to need to build between now and 2050. To make that add up on such a short time, we need to have some role for the really concentrated form of power that nuclear provides. Solomon suggests all sorts of technology needs to be on the table, including some that only exist in theory. To help him communicate these fresh new ideas, he partnered up with a friend who created illustrations for his book. The images in the book add this wonderful level of accessibility, and they were created by Violet Kitchen, who is a friend of mine and is an illustration student and professional illustrator. She and I worked on which pieces of the argument or of the technical things that I'm presenting could be reinforced or told solely through images. The images, in some cases, are illustrating technologies that people don't know what they look like, like underwater ocean current turbines are something that don't exist but could, and what would that even look like? Or giving us a sense of scale, how much waste is produced from coal versus solar versus nuclear, giving us some sense of perspective on that. In a moment, I chat with Violet Kitchen about her illustrations and the role of art in communicating climate change. I asked Solomon what he thought of climate proposals like carbon fee and dividend. You don't even have to believe in climate change to want carbon pricing. In fact, there are people that either don't believe in climate change or don't think it's as urgent as a problem as I do that are super carbon pricing advocates because it's just a good policy. Carbon pricing is not sufficient to solve climate change. I have moved away from emphasizing it as the central policy that we should be enacting. It is one of the best economy-wide efficiency policies that can support everything else that needs to happen. It makes things more efficient. If you ramp in the price high enough, fast enough, it can drive innovation. It can drive adoption of all of these systems that we need it in itself it's not going to get us to net negative global emissions. We need to be investing directly in the R&D needed to scale up, to, to develop specific technologies that have to exist to decarbonize certain processes like steel production. We need to be investing directly through government procurement or through mandates and subsidies and other incentives 
in scaling up the, the initial manufacturing and deployment of all of the technologies we need. Carbon pricing can be a, a core support policy for all of that. But we also need a larger agenda. And I think it would be best to tie it all together as a comprehensive package because that helps the messaging. This is one big vision. Everything in it is necessary. It's unified. It makes logical sense. And it will actually get us, which no specific proposal yet has achieved, it will actually get us to net negative global emissions by 2050. In reading Solomon Goldstein Rose's book and in chatting with him, it is impossible to not feel his excitement about implementing climate solutions He is bursting with enthusiasm for the future we can build together. We can not only create jobs by doing these projects in the industrialized countries and lower our own costs with similar lifestyles, but we can rapidly lift people out of poverty around the world and avert the, yes, the very scary impacts of climate change that we would see otherwise. So it's such a better world, not only than the world if we don't solve climate change, but then the world today. As climate communicators, he encourages us to lead with a positive message of a better future for all. This positive messaging is something that I've started trying to enforce in every conversation I have now, because we all need to be better communicators about what solving climate change actually looks like and why people should buy into the massive scale and pace that is needed. Talk to your friends, your colleagues, post things about this online. When you are reaching out as part of your advocacy, make sure to frame things with a positive vision. Where can we go? The book is The 100% Solution, a plan for solving climate change by Solomon Goldstein Rose. It's published by Melville House, and it's available in print, Kindle, and in audio form through Audible. Learn more about Solomon and the climate solution framework he proposes. Visit his website, SolomonGR.com. That's SolomonGR.com. As the host of Citizens Climate Radio, I talk to a lot of people about their own stories and how they became motivated and engaged in climate work. My breakthrough around climate change happened about seven years ago. It was a pretty traumatic experience in that I was not doing anything about climate change in my life. It was not on my radar. I wasn't resistant. I just thought I had bigger fish to fry with my other work. But I had a breakthrough. It was such a strong breakthrough that I decided that I needed to take a year off to study climate science and climate communication. And when I did, I began to think about Walt Whitman. I'm not quite sure why, but his poetry started coming to me. I, I, I felt the, an inclination to learn more about him. So I began to read about Walt Whitman, about his life, about his work. And what I discovered inspired me and gave me so much guidance and help with my climate work today. And even with COVID-19. The first thing that I learned about Walt Whitman that really encouraged me was that for much of the early part of his adult life, he was a bit of a loser. I mean, he really struggled in life to get anywhere. And, and, you know, when I hear of these, you know, great, magnificent people who have accomplished much, I have to say that sometimes I feel a little (laughs) intimidated. 
But to discover that someone as great as Walt Whitman, one of America's greatest poets, that he started out floundering, that it took him a while to find his way, well, that gives me hope. Now, there's been a lot of questions about what it was that caused Whitman to have a breakthrough so that he produced the leaves of grass. And in doing some of the research, I discovered that it had something to do with a very special night. We begin on a New York City summer evening in 1852 with a 33-year-old man dressed up for a night out on the town. This unmarried man struggled to find his way in the world, having failed at a variety of professions, teacher, print shop operator, freelance writer. He also dabbled with poetry, but his poems, they sounded like much of the same uninspired writing of the day. But on that unseasonably hot night in New York City, this man had no idea how profoundly his life was about to change. His name was Walter. Walter Whitman. Yes, the same Walt Whitman, who later became one of the most important poets of the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. But before he could write his opus, Leaves of Grass, he first needed to visit New York's Metropolitan Opera Hall. Once while visiting the opera, young Walt Whitman wrote of fellow opera-goers, What an air of polished, high-bred, deliberate, heartless, bland, superb, chilling, smiling, repelling fashion. That night, Whitman had an encounter with a woman. She moved him, not as a lover. No, what shook Whitman that night was not love, but art in the form of a voice, the voice of Madame Marietta Albone, the great Italian opera singer on her triumphant American tour. Whitman had been to the opera many times before, but had heard nothing like this. Without flair, Albone sang clear and strong. And as Whitman listened, deep inside, his creative soul stirred. This was pure art, not the trite, shallow stuff he had written as a young man. That night, Whitman had an apocalypse, the Greek word that means a revelation. As if a curtain had been pulled back and one sees what has been hidden from sight, this vision jars one awake. And that night, Whitman awoke. quit his job, left the city, settled into a personal breakdown, then wrote feverishly. 
Three years later, he self-published The Leaves of Grass, poetry so radical and deeply sensual, he didn't even dare include his name in the first edition. He just had a sketch of himself, open shirt, hat askew, jauntily looking at the reader. In that first edition of Leaves of Grass, he writes, The smoke of my own breath echoes, ripples, and buzzed whispers. My respiration and inspiration, the beating of my heart, the passing of blood and air through my lungs, the sniff of green leaves and dry leaves, and of the shore and dark-colored sea rocks, and of hay in the barn, the sound of the belched words of my voice, words loosed to the eddies of the wind. Walt Whitman found his voice at last. He took seriously his role as a prophetic poet, and likely he would have kept his hands covered in ink until he faced a second apocalypse. In 1861, six years after he first published The Leaves of Grass, the American Civil War began. By its end, in 1865, over 600,000 soldiers died, the largest number of casualties of any American conflict. Whitman was a pacifist of a Quaker background and already middle-aged, but while visiting his wounded brother in an army hospital, surrounded by the groaning anguish of the war-mangled young men, seeing hundreds of amputees and boys dying from infected wounds, Whitman's eyes opened to the need around him. He wrote that he felt a profound conviction of necessity. For the remainder of the war years, Walt Whitman volunteered as a nurse, visiting soldiers in the many army hospitals, writing letters for them, bringing small gifts of food and books, sitting by their bedsides, holding them as they died in his arms, providing comfort however he could. He wrote, These hospitals, so different from all others, these American young men, badly wounded, all sorts of wounds, operated on, pallid with diarrhea, languishing, dying with fever, pneumonia. Will they open a new world somehow to me, giving closer insights, showing our humanity, tried by terrible, fearfulest tests, probed deepest, bursting the petty bonds of art. To these, what are your dramas and poems? Whitman saw this need, and he had to respond. And when we see need like we see today around coronavirus, the physical suffering, the economic hardship, in a way we have a choice. We could hunker down and get in our bunker and close up our hearts and protect ourselves. And self-protection is, of course, very important. But we could also open our hearts to show empathy and love and generosity as I think about climate change, as we look at the impacts of climate change over time, we're going to see more and more extreme weather events, more and more people displaced who are brokenhearted, who are injured, losing home, losing, losing work, and the need for us to look after each other will only deepen over time. Dr. Natasha Dijanet, uh, who has been on the show many times, is a public health expert. 
And she often says climate change poses the greatest risk to public health. It is also the greatest opportunity to improve public health. These difficult times that we're facing with coronavirus, with the economy, with climate change, it's not our first rodeo. We've been through hard times before. And we have the roadmap of what it takes to rebuild, to recover, to care for each other, to look after each other. Well, thank you for listening. And thank you, Mark, for giving me a chance to share a little of what I do on Citizens Climate Radio. Our show comes out as a monthly podcast. You can find Citizens Climate Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Citizen C Radio. That's at Citizen C Radio. I'm also on Twitter. You will find me at P2Sun, the letter P, the number 2, S-O-N, at P2Sun. My website is petersontoscano.com. If you are looking for creative, engaging Zoom presentations about climate change, check out what I'm currently offering. There is a lot of important work for us to do as we embrace our roles on this rapidly changing planet. Please, please take good care of yourselves. Thank you, Mark Helps Me, for the chance to be on your show today. I hand the controls back to you. And thank you, Peterson, for filling in for me today. What a great show and what great work you are doing for the healing of the world. I couldn't be more thankful for you and your service to our planet. Folks, I'll be back from my vacation in the North Woods of Minnesota soon, and it will be my joy to sit down with one of the nation's top progressive radio hosts, Tom Hartman, to discuss his new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies. I'm sure you'll both enjoy and learn oodles from Tom, so I'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our healing.